Thank you, choir. While you're being seated, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, that's where we're going to be. We're going to roll in quite a few passages of Scripture today, and um, some of those you may want to just jot down as we go. It may be a little hard to keep up because it is going to be quite a few. Uh, Certainly, you can try if you'd like, and uh, we're going to have them on the screen behind me as well. John chapter 19. So we're adding another layer to the series we've been in now for a couple of months called Jesus Come and See, and it's it's somewhat of a a, uh, biography, and we've been looking at a lot of the high points of Jesus's life and ministry. Certainly can't cover every single one of them, but hitting the high points today, in a lot of ways, we sort of get to the culmination of where everything has been headed in the message that we're going to look at today specifically. Many of you are familiar with a place called Alcatraz, federal penitentiary that was started in 1934, I believe it was, shut down in 1963, almost a 30-year history. Alcatraz there, located, as you can see, in the San Francisco Bay. It's a mile and a quarter from the property of Alcatraz, 22 acres, essentially a mile and a quarter to San Francisco. And of course, those waters are incredibly treacherous. They're cold, they're icy, they're dangerous. And uh, in the span of about 30 years, there were approximately 1,500 different prisoners that were held um, in Alcatraz as federal prisoners. It was the most well-known maximum security federal penitentiary in the country for those 30 years, housed about 275 inmates at one time. And it was known for being... uh, for the most part, inescapable. Now, there were those who did. There were 36 who escaped over the course of those 30 years. Uh, Of those 36, 23 were were essentially captured and uh, and then dealt with. There were six, I believe, that, that were shot and killed. There were others who drowned, and then there were yet others who uh, went missing. They were never recovered and assumed drowned. And so there's no record definitively of anyone ever escaping from Alcatraz. Now, we can take that picture down because I think what I want us to focus on this morning more so now that we have that picture in our mind is that all of us have been in a place where we've kind of been in a different type of Alcatraz, whether we've realized it or not. Maybe for some of you, you're even there today. You know, for some, it, it's, a, it's a prison called addiction. And where you've tried everything you can to get out from underneath that addiction. And you've, you've tried every program. You've tried every effort. You've taken all of the advice that you can. You've bought books. You've looked at videos. And yet you find yourself still in this prison. And there's a sense of hopelessness. Just like for those who are literally in Alcatraz, they just knew, I'm not getting out of this place. And if I try, I'm not going to make it. Right? Maybe that's where you are today. Or you remember a time when you were there. Maybe for you in Alcatraz, it's not addiction-related. Maybe it's relational to where there's some brokenness in a relationship, and you've tried everything you can to to fix that, and yet it was such a significant relationship in your life, a parent, a spouse, someone who was close to you, that that you feel as though, you know what, I'm never going to be able to experience that relationship again the way that it used to be. Maybe it's a financial hole. Maybe it's a hole that came from that you dug yourself out of some decisions that you made or a season in your life. And, and yet we all know what it's like to be at a place where it just feels inescapable. And we don't quite know what we need to do next. And, and we have this sense of hopelessness even at times that whatever I try is probably not even going to work anyway. And in, a, in a, the largest sense, the most clear sense, all of us can relate to that because of sin. To where we're, we, we've been in a place where we felt the weight of our sin and we felt in many ways the hopelessness that comes along with that 
specifically. Now in this series, we've looked at a lot of different principles. This morning, I want to roll out one to you with Alcatraz kind of in the forefront of your mind and that whole mindset of being in prison and being in bondage. I want to give you this principle that we're going to build on through the rest of the series. And the principle is this, the degree to which we ultimately recognize, to to, to which we realize and embrace our need is the same degree to which we ultimately celebrate our rescue. Right, The degree to which we realize I am at the bottom and I have no way to rescue myself. I think we've got this as a principle. If we can go ahead and bring that up, that would, that would be helpful. The, the, the degree to which we recognize our need, the depth of our need, is the same degree to which we then celebrate our rescue. Think about it this way. Think for a moment that you're standing out in the street, and, and, and you pause, maybe you drop your keys, you're in the middle of the road, and you've been down to pick them up, and out of nowhere, somebody comes up from behind you, and they just give you a big old push, a big old shove. You go flying over the curb, you hit the grass, and everything else like just goes flying, and you get up, and probably what you're going to do is you're going to turn around, and you're going to be like, what in the world, you're right? Some of you, you know, you just kind of got that, that extra little, little, you know, something, or other. you're going to go get in their face, you're going to be like, wanting to, like what do you, who do you think you are, you know, you're going to turn it into that kind of a thing, right? What do you think you're doing? I mean, why would you push me? I just fell down. I dropped all my stuff. I mean, what is going on with you? But imagine then for a moment that, that you realize that the, the whole reason the person came up from behind you and pushed you out of the road over the curb and into the grass was because there was a car that was speeding your direction that was just inches of running you over. And you realize that, and, and, and the way you look at that whole experience is going to be different. The degree to which you realize the depth of your need is the degree to which you're going to appreciate and celebrate your rescue. You're probably going to give the guy a hug. Man, thank you, you saved my life. Well, imagine it goes another step. Imagine that the person who pushed you out of the way, you don't have the opportunity to give a hug because he risked his life in exchange for yours. You're going to talk about him or her for the rest of your life. And you're probably going to call their family on the anniversary of their death, to say to them what you can't say to the person who rescued you, thank you, yet again. As we've walked through the series, Jesus, Come and See, we've looked from the beginning, really before the beginning, before Genesis 1-1 even starts, and we've begun to establish who Jesus is based on the pages of Scripture. And the first thing that we established is Jesus, when he says, come and see, we see that he is eternal. He has no beginning, and he has no end. He's king of kings, lord of lords, that he is God. And whenever he was born in the city of Bethlehem and placed in a manger, that wasn't the beginning of Jesus. That was just the beginning of his experience on this earth. He really has no beginning. He's eternal, without beginning, without end, God himself, no less than God himself. And yet he chose to take on flesh and blood. He took on humanity. And when he did, he didn't lay aside his deity. He didn't say before he left heaven, hey, I'm going to put my deity up here and I'm going to take on humanity down there. And then when I get back again, I'm going to put my deity back. No, he didn't do that. But when he came here, he was fully God and he was fully man. And he lived his life so well, perfectly, that as we saw last week, that uh, Luke in the book of Acts, he he chronicles for us the the statement that was made about Jesus, that that he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil, right? That, That his life was the embodiment of perfection, that when he walked this earth, he walked this earth without sin, 100% God, 100% 
100% man, and yet there was, a, there, there was a culmination to everything that was taking place. Everything was headed, everything was rushing towards one specific event that we see in Scripture, and that's the event that we get to today, and that event is Jesus' death. Everything about his mission, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Everything about his message, that, uh, that it was a message of a new kingdom and a new king and that it was this open invitation for everybody to be a part of it. Everything about his ministry that validated his mission, validated who he was as God. All of that put together, everything steamrolled uh, ultimately towards this event we're looking at today, his death there on the cross. When I was in seminary, my first semester, very first semester, I was in a missions class with a fellow named Dr. Keith Idle. And it was in that class, uh, Dr. Idle had been a, um, a missionary uh, already previously. He was not just a professor who taught, he had been a missionary already. Uh, and then he devoted the latter part of his life to training up others to, be, uh, to live life on mission as well. And I remember in that first semester, I was brand new, had been out of college eight years, Back in the classroom again, he showed a video that is, to me, the most powerful uh, uh, ministry Christian video that I've ever seen. And it was a video about half an hour in length. You can still access it, I believe, online somehow through YouTube or what have you. Uh, New Tribes Mission was the ministry group that put it out. Now they're called Ethnos 360. But it was a video about a group of people called the Mook Tribe. And the name of the video was Etau. It chronicles the story of a couple, Mark and Gloria Zook. Uh, they had been, or Mark had been, basically uh, compelled to live a life of mission. He had registered, tried to apply to be able to go with another sending agency. They denied him, sent him a letter. Based on your age, you're just too old for us to invest in to send on to the mission field. And so he went pretty much, for the most part, Later, after that rejection, he found a way to go. And he went to the Mook tribe there, a tribe that lived in isolation in Papua New Guinea, a tribe that was unevangelized, that had no access to the gospel. Their spiritual belief, everyone has a spiritual belief of some sort. Their spiritual belief was not in God. They didn't know who God was. It certainly wasn't in Jesus. They'd never heard who Jesus was. Their spiritual belief was more aimed towards the, the, the spiritual world. They, they, they believed that the, the, the spirits were ones to be appeased, and they constantly lived in fear of the spirits. Mark and Gloria came to them, and they lived amongst them, and they learned their language, and they began to serve them, and they began to demonstrate the love of Jesus to them. And then they began to share the message of the gospel. But the way they did it was a little bit atypical. They didn't start with uh, uh, John 3.16. They didn't start with Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, they started way beyond that. They started by bringing out a map. And on that map, they showed the village where the Mook tribe lived. And they said, this is where you live. And they showed them their, their, their area based in the context of, of other communities around Papua New Guinea. And then they blew it out and showed them that that was a country that existed in a larger world. And then they began to talk about the God who had created that world. And slowly and methodically and painstakingly and patiently, they laid out the story from Scripture. And they often would do it visually. They would sometimes act it out. And they painted this picture, this, this story that the Bible tells us of a God who exists outside of time and outside of space and outside of matter, who created everything that we see, including they themselves. And they began to move through the stories of the Old Testament and they talked about man's sin and Adam and Eve and how they rebelled against the God who had created them. And they began to talk about the sacrificial system that you see uh, uh, laid out in Leviticus primarily and they talked about the sacrifices that were offered 
and, uh, and they talked about uh, uh, other heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. And then they finally, finally got to the New Testament. And, and they laid out the story of who Jesus is and that he came and that he was unlike any other and that he was God and he did good and he performed all these works. And they took the time to lay out who Jesus was specifically. And then they got to the point where they acted out the death of Jesus. And they pictured for them, and they explained to them the details of the message of the gospel. And they said that the response of the people there, because they had become so enamored with Jesus, was just absolute distraught. They were just broken that this could happen to a person like them, or like him. And God began to work in them, and he began to work in their hearts. Testimonies began to be shared as the light bulbs went off, that all of that was for them. And they began to testify. There was a lady in the crowd who, who began to shout out, Etau, Etau, which means it is true, it is true. And there's this picture. I love it. There, there, there's a reason. I got chill bumps. This is my favorite movie of all. It's because the story of just cultural celebration, shouting and jumping and leaping and dancing, that all of this was true, and it was all for their forgiveness. And they say that virtually the entire village placed their faith in Jesus that day the depth to which they recognized their need was the depth to which they celebrated and they recognized their rescue. All four gospel writers tell us about the crucifixion of Jesus. This morning I want to take a moment before we begin to go into a little more detail to read John's version, a portion of it, John chapter 19 beginning in verse 17. John writes, and he says, They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription, and he put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and they made four parts, a part to every, sol uh, to, to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After these things... Or after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had finished or received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. 
All four gospel writers capture this for us specifically. And yet when you begin to look at the Bible in totality, starting from the beginning, reading all the way through the end, what we find is is that Jesus' death was prophesied really from the beginning. I mean, it's prophesied from the beginning. When you go back early in Scripture, you begin to see this picture that throughout the pages of Scripture, Jesus' death didn't just sort of jump up, you know, in the Gospels, but it had been prophesied from early, early on, about as early on as possible. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, what we find here is that in Genesis 1 and 2, God has created it. It was very good. Genesis chapter 3, we find that mankind sins. Adam and Eve sinned, and and then ever since then, every single one of us have been sinning except for Jesus himself. And and it's in Genesis 3, just the third chapter in the Bible, that we see that God speaks something to the enemy, to Satan himself. And it's it's this prophecy, so to speak, that there's going to be a Messiah who comes. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, God is going to give uh, judgment on Adam, on man, he's going to place judgment on Eve, on, on woman, and he's going to judge the enemy as well. Look at what he says in Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, this is God speaking, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to Satan. He's not speaking to the serpent here, he's speaking to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And when it says her seed, that's in the singular. It's not talking about mankind. He's not saying, yep, the devil is going to be at enmity with mankind for all the rest of history. It's in the singular. He's speaking of a reference to Christ. It's a reference to the Messiah who would come. How do we know that? By what he says at the end of verse 15. And he says to the enemy, he, this Messiah, will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is a prophecy of the death of Jesus. And the reason we know that is because what the enemy would do to Jesus on the cross on that Friday, that good Friday, would be like a strike to the heel. He would be placed in the grave for three days. God knew he wouldn't stay there. He would rise again from the dead. It was like a secondary strike to the heel. But, but what God knew was that three days later when he rises from the dead and what would be accomplished through his death on the cross would be a crushing blow to the head of the enemy. Not only on that Sunday when he would rise again from the dead, read through the end of Revelation that there will be a day when it is known for all of history, right, that it's God alone who reigns victorious and that the enemy will get what he ultimately deserves. And and from the very beginning, the third chapter of the book, God is prophesying of a Messiah to come. You move a little further forward to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, written by David 1,000 years or so before Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Psalm 22, David is writing, this is known as a messianic psalm, verse 14. He says, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. Listen to this, they pierced my hands and my feet. This was a thousand years before Jesus would be born. Uh, uh, Crucifixion was not even practiced when David wrote this, 1,000 years before Jesus was born. He says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a messianic psalm pointing 1,000 years down the road to what Jesus would experience. Jesus would quote from this psalm. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
His death was prophesied from the beginning. You move to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah writing 700, 750 years before Jesus would be born. 250 years or so after David would write this psalm. Look at what Isaiah says, looking forward to a Messiah who would come and die. Isaiah 53 verse 4. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, spitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep, Isaiah says, have gone astray, right? Every one of us is in need of rescue. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he, was cut, that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The Old Testament scriptures, almost from the very beginning, would prophesy about Jesus' death. His death would also be foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Not just prophesied. But it would be foreshadowed, it would be pictured visually, right? The, the, these, these visual pictures in history of a Messiah who would come and ultimately die. One of these is in Isaiah, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in Genesis chapter 22. Look at what it says here, Genesis 22. You can follow along with me. A powerful story, true story from Abraham's life where Abraham and his son Isaac picture for us a Messiah who was going to come. Abraham lived, if I'm not mistaken, 2,000 years before Jesus would be born. He's being commanded by God to offer his son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. Of course, God knew that this would not be fulfilled. God knew that he wouldn't allow him to kill his own son. Genesis 22, look at what it says, beginning in verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, and he arranged the wood. He bound his son, Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Can you see that? Can you hear John three sixteen there? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. You see such a picture there, right, of a sacrifice of a son that didn't go through, that God provided a substitute in exchange and, of course, the picture there is that, that we should have been sacrificed. We should have died for our own sins. But God has provided a substitute, a satisfactory sacrifice in the person of Jesus. People would say, well, well what a coincidence. I mean, come on. You got, you, you got one book written by over 40 different authors. They just sort of added to it. You know, and, and, and this is just coincidence. How can it be coincidence when Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus and he plays this thing out and 2,000 years later is when it all unfolds and history documents it for us. 
Jesus dying in our place as the exact image of what happened with Abraham and his son, that he died as a sacrifice that took our place. You get to Exodus, we won't even turn to this passage for the sake of time, but you get to Exodus and you look at the Passover and you see how God commanded the people of Israel to take and to slay their Passover lamb and to spread the the blood over the doorways of their homes. And as they would do that, when the angel of death would pass over, that they would be spared. It was the, the blood that was on display that ultimately provided for their rescue. Yet again, another image, another picture of, of how Jesus would later come and give himself as a sacrifice. You look at the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus, the whole system that was laid out there and the temple would point ultimately as foreshadowing the, the sacrifice, the death of Jesus. You look at the Day of Atonement when, when the priest would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people once a year. And he, he would offer a sacrifice and, and then the hands of the priest would be placed on a, on a goat that would be taken out and released into the wilderness signifying visually for the people, here, here goes your sins. They've been conferred to this, to this goat. He's been taken out to the wilderness. You can read all this. It's in Leviticus and he's being released, picturing for you that your sin is being taken away for the next year. And then they do it all over again the next year and the next year. In the next year. And you can see the significance then when Jesus enters the scene and his public ministry begins. And there's John the Baptist, and he knows exactly who he is, and he testifies here comes a man who's the thong of his sandals. I'm not even worthy to untie. Here comes a man that, that gives me my life mission to decrease so that he in, can increase. And, and, he, and, and this, this man, John the Baptist, points to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Do you hear the, 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 the imagery? He says, The Lamb of God who doesn't just remove your sin for a season, there's the Lamb of God. He points to Jesus who can take away the sin of the whole world. Not just for us, fellow Israelites, for the whole world. And we see from early on in the pages of Scripture, far beyond what can be categorized as just mere coincidence, coincidence, this story, this story that's being woven together, that there would be a Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, who would come and who would give his life, not just for the people of Israel, but for those who were lost and dying in their sin, in a prison of their own making. He would come, and he would pay the price for our rescue. And the degree to which we recognize our need is the degree to which we appreciate and celebrate our rescue. There are four words in the New Testament, and I don't want this to be an academic exercise these next five minutes, but there are four four words that it's hard to talk about the death of Jesus without recognizing these four words. I hope you'll jot them down, I hope you'll listen closely, and I hope you'll Take a look at the passages that put them on display. The first word is the word propitiation. You can roll this word out tomorrow and uh, at the water cooler in the break room at work, and there's probably very few who'll know what it means. All right, propitiation. There's a lot of folks in here, and, and no fault. I mean, for a long time I had no clue what it meant. Probably when I got to seminary, I had no clue what it meant. But it's a significant word when you talk about the death of Jesus. The word propitiation just simply means to satisfy God's wrath against sin. It's not a comfortable thought to thinking to think about God as a God of wrath, is it? But that doesn't run contrary to his nature as being a God of grace and mercy and love. It's his wrath against sin. We know that he loves people, for God so loved the world that he gave. 
but he's also just and he's also holy and he has to judge sin rightly for what it is. And when you think of it, sin is the highest act of rebellion against the God of the universe, the God who created us. And it has to be judged. Propitiation is the act of satisfying God's wrath against sin. You already understand the concept of propitiation when you think about it this way. I saw an illustration that I thought laid it out really well. You think about two parties in a civil lawsuit, right? One has been wronged, the other has done the wronging. You've got an offender and you've got the offended. Let's just say it's a civil lawsuit, it's a legal matter, it's a legal issue, and and, um, attorneys begin to talk, and they come to terms to where there's a settlement outside of court, right? There's a settlement made that doesn't have to go to trial after all. There's a settlement, and, and, and basically the terms of the settlement are put on the table, and the offender has agreed to those terms, and the offended has agreed to the terms as well. And essentially what happens as that civil case is settled is that the offended says what they have offered is satisfactory and I'm willing to accept it as such. It's propitiation. We all stood in need of rescue. We all stood in need of our sins being forgiven. We could not offer to pay for our sins ourselves because we're not perfect. That's not satisfactory. We could not buy off our sins and pay God enough money. That would not be satisfactory. We could not offer the blood of sheep and goats year after year after year because that would be unsatisfactory in the scope of eternity. You can't just cover over sin. It has to be removed. But when Jesus died... And when he died in our place, as God and as man, perfect substitute, perfect sacrifice, the Father said, that is satisfactory. That is propitiation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 kind of gives us a rendering of what that propitiation looks like. Take a look at what it says. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John is writing. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation. He he, he is the satisfactory payment to appease the wrath of God toward our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John would point ultimately to the love of God over in chapter 4, that same book, down in verse 10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins. When you talk about the death of Jesus on the cross, you have to talk about this whole concept of satisfactory payment for our sins. That's why we don't have to focus on our works to get ourselves into heaven because his payment was enough. That's why going to church for X amount of times, having perfect attendance all the way through Sunday school as a kid, or or coming to church every single Sunday or when the doors are open, helping enough people who are in need, those things don't count towards our salvation because his, his payment was enough. That's propitiation. There's a second word when you talk about the death of Jesus that you see all through the New Testament, and the second word is the word redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and to us, and he says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption, here's the kicker, through his blood. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption is just gaining possession of something in exchange for a payment. It was used more often in the first century outside of the scriptures. It was used as a term related to slavery, to where a a slave's freedom could be purchased by someone willing to pay the price to set them free. That was redemption. 
And what the New Testament tells us is that all those who have a relationship with God have been redeemed. We've been set free, not because we deserve it, not because we did enough good, not because we go to church, but because of our, 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 our faith in the person of Jesus. Right? He has redeemed us. He has set us free. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, one of the most riveting passages of Scripture that, uh, that I believe speaks to the effect of Jesus' death on the cross for us. Colossians chapter 2. Let me find it real quick. Verse 13 and verse 14. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... When you were dead, when you were locked up in Alcatraz because of your sin, when you had no hope of rescuing yourself, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt, hang on to that phrase, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Imagine for a moment you stand before the God of heaven and your life on this earth has come to an end. Just imagine, we don't see this picture in the Bible, just imagine for a moment as you stand there, God says, why should I let you in? And there off your right shoulder is the devil himself saying, yeah, why, why should he let you in? God, I'll tell you why he's not deserving to come in. I'll tell you why she can't come in. And he unfurls this list of all the sins you've ever committed. And standing there for God and all of heaven to see is exhibit A of the evidence against you of why you don't deserve a relationship with God and you don't deserve heaven. And imagine that we take that list and you walk it over to a cross and you nail that list to a cross and some would say that's blasphemy. How can an image of the cross be covered with a list of our own sins? That's exactly what happened when Jesus died there. It was your sin. (laughs) My sin, covering the whole thing. That's redemption. He paid the price to buy us back. There's the third key word, justification. Romans chapter 5 gives a little bit of emphasis specifically of what, of what justification is in chapter 5. Verse 9, look at what Paul says as he's writing to the church in the city of Rome. He says, much more than having now been justified, again, by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Some would say justification is God seeing us justify had not sinned. Maybe you've heard that before. I don't think that hits the bullseye. It's great. I think there's a lot of that's true. He sees us justified, not sin. And in a lot of ways, that's true. But justification has really a broader context. It's not just God sort of turning a blind eye and saying, la, 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 I'm going to see you as if you didn't sin. No, God knows the sin. He paid for it. He knows the cost. But what justification is, is a declaration in the face of the reality that we've sinned and fallen short. It's a a declaration. It's a legal term, a declaration of the righteous judge saying, not guilty. That's justification. It's knowing us at our worst. It's knowing us at our best, and it's still not being good enough. And God's saying, I still choose to declare you not guilty. That's why I get a shot to go to heaven. That's why I have the hope that I'm going to heaven. Not because I deserve it, not because I 
have done enough good. I haven't, not even close. It's because when I made the decision to yield my life to Jesus and place my faith in him the way the Bible calls me to, that he chose in that moment to declare me from that point forward not guilty. It's in his blood. It's the only way. Propitiation is the appeasing of his wrath that we deserve. Redemption is buying us back from the slavery of sin. Justification is him declaring us not guilty. And the final word is reconciliation. It's restoring a relationship that was broken and undone. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Verse 21, probably maybe my favorite verse in all the Bible. He the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was the greatest transaction in all of history. God on a cross for you and me. Jesus' death was not a moral example. Jesus' death was an act of mercy and grace and justice, of taking what we deserved. Not so that we can go away saying, you know, I just need to live my life a little more like Jesus, you know, the greatest one who ever walked the earth. No, no, no. It's so that we might say, you know what, I need to die to myself (laughs) and follow Jesus because he's died and he gave it all for me. And the depth to which we recognize our need is the depth to which we'll recognize and celebrate our rescue. And it was on that day on the cross, and you can't substitute the two. Next week I'll talk about the resurrection. But it was on that day when Jesus died that he said those three simple English words for us, one word in the Greek, to telestai, it is finished. And when he said that one word in the Greek, to telestai, it is finished, it was a financial term that meant paid in full. When he cried that from the cross, it is finished. As he died, when he cried out that word, to telestai, it was him at the same time swinging open the gates of Alcatraz and saying, I've got the keys, follow me and I'm going to lead you home. And he takes us out of that bondage and out of that prison of that Alcatraz called sin and he leads us not only out of the prison but across the icy waters and he gives us an abundant life and he says I'm going to be here with you forever I'm going to send you my spirit and you'll never be without God you'll never be alone and when your eyes close in death on this side I'm going to make sure that you arrive on the other side for life that's never going to end the way I intended in the first place Alcatraz is a bad place to be a place without hope some of you remember what it was like to be there not near San Francisco, in here. And the depth to which you recognize your need is the depth to which you'll celebrate the rescue. Celebrate it well. (laughs) And for some of you today, sitting right here, maybe watching online, you don't have the assurance that you've ever been rescued because you can't remember a time when you ever asked Jesus to forgive and take over in the first place. And the beautiful truth is, is that Remember, it's a message of a new king and a new kingdom and an open invitation, including you, to be a part of it all. And right where you sit today as an act of your will, if you're willing to admit your sin and see Jesus as God who died and rose, you can give it all to him. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. 
Maybe for you today, for the first time, you've understood the big story, the story of the gospel. Not because I've explained it so clearly, but just because the Bible explains it so clearly. And yet, in a nutshell, you've been able to see the story from beginning to end of sin and your part in that, and of a Savior, Jesus, God, who came and he died as a substitute for you, as a sacrifice that was acceptable to pay for all of your sin, not just to sweep them under the rug, but to take them away. And he offers himself to you today. He says, come and see. He says, come and trust. Come and believe. Come and follow. And the way that gets put in place today is a simple act of faith on your part. If you've never given your life to Jesus today, you can pray a prayer like this. There's nothing magical about the words. It's the demonstration of faith. You can say something like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned. And I believe that you're God and that you died for me and that you rose. And today, as an act of my will, I turn from my sin and I invite you, Jesus, to take residence in my life, to take ownership, to forgive me, and to take over. Help me to follow you from this day forward. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time, It wasn't the words, it was the step of faith that you demonstrated in Jesus. It was the surrender that he did all the work and you just simply responded. And our church wants to be an encouragement to you. What you do next is not going to save you. You're already saved if you just gave your life to Christ. But we would love for you to take that card in front of you, that connection card, and just check the box on the reverse side at the top that says, Today you trusted Jesus. Give us a way to reach out to you. We want to encourage you. We want to to help you in your brand new walk with the Lord. God, we thank you today for those that may have given their lives to you for the first time. Lord, thank you for Nicholas that had given his life to Jesus, but he boldly professed that through his baptism today. Thank you for the many that fill seats in this room this morning who have made that decision maybe in decades past. Lord, all of it, an act of rescue that we needed more than we could even realize. Thank you, Jesus, for being the one who gave and conquered death and rose for the new life that you give us. Help us to live a life that honors you, that shares this message with those all around us. For us in Jesus' name we pray.